Acts chapter number two this evening. And good job, girls. That was a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty sounding trio. I need to make sure I say pretty sounding. I guess they were pretty, but I don't know if that's really a good thing for me to be saying. But uh, they, they, pretty sounding trio is really, really good. I love that song, man. That's just such a deep truth. In His presence I will dwell where it is well. Isn't that what preacher spoke about this morning as he was reading that passage of Mary and Martha? Just struck me like I've never read the passage before. Jesus says, one thing is needful. Out of every... We, we, we so confuse the priorities in the Christian life, don't we? We make it this big puzzle with all these pieces... And Jesus says, one thing is needful. One thing. And she had chosen the better part. Service is, well, it's my calling, right? And service is part of every Christian's life, or it ought to be. But the Lord doesn't say that is the needful part. He says, service without submission is silly. <laughs> he says, you submit to me. In his presence I will dwell where it is well. And you see that uh, Martha there going back and forth, struggling, serving, and all this stuff. This is exactly what happens when you serve without spending time in the presence of Jesus. You grow frustrated. Even the smallest things begin to set you off. And man, that was a great message this morning that preacher preached, uh, spoke to me. Acts chapter 2 this evening. I'm going to start a series that will probably carry on for about seven weeks. Right now, that's the plan. I have uh, seven passages uh, selected, seven topics selected, five of which already have the sermon outlines to go with them. So um, uh, I think it'll go seven. It may go longer if we get extra innings. We're not sure, but we'll see if we get there. But our theme this year is Renew. And one of the difficult things about the way that we structure our year is um, as soon as we present on vision night the theme for our church, we're excited, we're giving you gift bags and logo products, man, we want you to be excited about it with us. We're presenting to you goals and, and all these endeavors that we want to uh, see accomplished throughout the year, and, and, and we go straight into stewardship month. Which, by the way, I believe is one of the main reasons that the Lord has continued to bless our church is because we do try to be good stewards with uh, the resources that He gives our church. And He has put here a giving people. And so I believe stewardship is very important, but it's difficult because as soon as we present Vision Night, we somewhat, not totally, but we do have to somewhat uh, abandon the theme for a little while to preach and teach on stewardship. And then we go a month in February, and then March is Missions Month. And generally, we're preaching missions-based sermons. We, we really don't ask a lot of the missionaries to preach. Um, it's very difficult to just select which one, and we're very, uh, uh, maybe this isn't the greatest word, but we're very jealous of who preaches here. We want to make sure that they're vetted. And some of the missionaries that come through, we may know their doctrine, but we do not know their person as well. And so we don't let a lot of missionaries preach behind this pulpit. Usually we know them if they do. And so we, we try to protect this pulpit. And so we go straight into Missions Month. And so we've gone through January, an entire month of pretty much not talking about our theme. Then we go through March, a, another month, not really mentioning much about our theme. And here's where we find ourselves now in April. And I want to get to our theme because this theme has been on my heart since last August. And I've been thinking about this thought. And man, I believe it is one of the most important things for the state of current and modern Christianity in America. I think this topic right here is uh, so needed today. And I may not be the perfect person to preach on it, but I'm the person you got. So we'll, we'll get to it a little bit this evening. Acts chapter 2. Obviously, Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost uh, and we'll uh, start reading in verse number 36. Um, the, 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 see, the theme of the series is renew, reoccurring practices for daily personal renewal. The reason I say this is one of the most needed topics in Christianity today is because the, the 
Christianity that the Bible speaks of is not being lived out in most Christians' lives. And I am certainly not speaking of some type of rigid adherence to a set of rules or even a life lived in obedience, but but the life, the portrayal of victorious Christian living in the Bible is totally different than what I see lived out in most Christians' lives. Most Christians are not really even all that happy to be a Christian. Most Christians, uh, and and let's just go there because this is where I feel the Holy Spirit's leading us, most Christians are really just Christians because that's what their parents were. And, and we have become a sort of cultural Christianity. Very much in a similar way that a lot of Latinos are Catholic but never go to Mass. We're Christian and we still go to church. But as far as a happy and vibrant and joyous and abundant life that Christ talks about, we know nothing about living that out every day. I do not believe that Christianity is to, supposed to feel empty or pointless at all. I think without Christianity, I would be kind of like one of the cynics saying, what is the purpose for living on this earth? If I do not have a purpose higher than just me, what grand, what grand plan is that? But I know that because of this book and because of the Savior who loves me and died for me, because he says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give to you and expect it in. I know he has a plan and a destiny for my life. And there is tremendous joy found in that. And that's how we have daily personal renewal. But we also see throughout the Bible that there are a series of practices that the Christian is to partake of on a constant basis to experience this renewal. Are you with me? Many Christians' lives resemble the coal that is at the bottom of the fireplace. They show the heat from yesterday... They're dark now and they may have a semblance of heat, but it was from years gone by. And the only time that they put off any heat or any light is when one gust of the Holy Spirit really breathes upon them in, say, a church service or a revival meeting somewhere or a missions trip. And that's really the only vibrancy they ever experience. Look, you do not need a missions trip or a revival meeting to be happy in Jesus. So our goal is to find how we can be the vibrant Christians that Christ wants us to be and experience this renewal that the, the Bible offers to us. And so here's what we're going to do. Now, I said that there's daily practices that we must partake of and I'm going to, on a constant basis, but I'm going to break my own rule, okay? Because the first week... This is the only practice that we will cover that does not require constant practice of it. Every other one recalls or somehow points to the fact that there is a continual practice of it. But this one, we only do one time, and it is this. In order to renew ourselves, we must first receive what the Lord has to offer. Notice in verse number 36 of Acts chapter 2, The Bible says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter now is wrapping up the great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And that's kind of his conclusion statement. His conclusion sounds like this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And he stood up and preached this message boldly. And there are those there that are unsaved. And the Bible says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? You see, preacher mentioned and alluded to this this morning, but the primary difference between teaching and preaching is preaching pushes you to a decision point. If preaching has no application, it is not preaching. 
Preaching calls you to the point where you must decide for yourself whether you will honor the Lord and follow Him in obedience or if you will reject the message. The rich young ruler came to Christ and rejected what Jesus had to say. These people hear what Peter says and they say, what shall we do? If we accept everything that you've said, what is our next step? And that's what preaching is. It leaves people at the point where they're asking themselves, What is the next step? Verse number 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. Can I get an amen there? Because we're in that group, by the way. We were afar off. We are Gentile by birth. We're not near the trunk of the tree as far as the human uh, heritage tree goes. We are uh, afar off as far as the timeline goes, now nearly over 2,000 years removed from the time of Christ. So we are afar off. And praise the Lord, that promise is to you and me. This promise is unto you and to me and to our children that the Lord still saves. In verse 40, And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Verse 41. Then they that gladly... We said that next word there with me. Received. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. For time's sake, we'll stop reading there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Please help us as we study your word. May you help me as I preach your word this evening, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'll tell you, I am kind of a sucker for new things. I like getting new toys. Um, I, I enjoy the experience of uh, coming home, driving down the driveway and seeing that Amazon box on my doorstep. You know, you get to, you're thinking, oh man, is it going to be as good as I hope it is? Uh, very much like Christmas morning, even to this day. And you may say, Brother Andrew, that's silly. You're a grown man. Well, I bet you feel quite the same way in the things that you're interested in. Uh, we like new things. And, and to be honest with you, I think that society has somehow conditioned us to be that way with all the millions and billions of dollars that have been poured into advertising that all the commercials are essentially saying, get the new thing. Don't you want this big new shiny phone? I mean, now they're phablets. That's what they're called. They're phone tablets. They have them now that fold. I think the last one I saw was $2,600. It's a phone and a tablet. You just unfold it. They, They say, oh, don't you want this? Man, how many of you, I hate the car shopping experience, but when you finally get through with that, man, driving that new car home, there's, that's a good day, right? You're excited to show everybody, you're excited. The best part about the new car is this, the new car smell. And here's the thing, no matter how many car wash wafers you get, nothing in the world can duplicate the real thing. I don't know if it's just something in our minds, but we're programmed to enjoy the new nice things. I guess it was about six years ago, my wife and I bought our house. Uh, or we actually built our house. And uh, dad had given me some property right there beside, behind his property. I think he wanted to keep an eye on me, make sure I wasn't doing dumb stuff. And so he had given me about two acres there behind his house. And it just worked out where I was able to uh, build a house there behind him. And uh, uh, man, seeing our house go up, the excitement of actually being able to live in the house the very first night, man, there was nothing like that. And I'll be honest, I still enjoy going home. But you know what I've noticed is over the course of these about six or seven years, now there's stains, you know, the paint. I don't smell the paint anymore. And you say, well, that's not pleasant. It is when it says, hey, this is new. You're, it's okay to get high at that point, right? 
And we enjoy new things. But you know what I've noticed? And every new thing I've ever got from one of the greatest Christmas gifts I ever got in all my life was the Nintendo 64. Boy, man, I look forward to that. I got Star Fox with it. And then several years later when my parents lightened up, I got 007, which changed my life. Changed my life. And you see, I, I, I've noticed that no matter how good of a gift it is, the newness always wears off. Always. I'm talking about, I could not think of one thing that transcended that statement. The newness always wears off. You come into church and maybe the first few weeks you're here, man, you're excited, boy, you're on fire. And then eventually, I mean, preacher sermons get the same. And, uh, you know, the Sunday school teacher isn't as interesting as they used to be. And the newness always wears off. But that is so not the picture of biblical Christian living. See, Jesus puts it like this. John chapter 4. But whoso drinketh of the water that I shall give him, him shall never thirst again. Meaning this will be totally beneficial. It will be totally satisfactory. If you have the water that I have to offer, every day you will remember the taste of this water and it will be new and afresh to you. The Bible goes on to say, But the water that I shall give him uh, shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. That's the picture of biblical Christianity is, is an excitement, an exuberance that frankly is just lacking today in Christianity. John chapter 6, Jesus puts it like this, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Every physical and spiritual need you have, if you'll come to me, I will meet it and I will supply. Jesus says, you'll never thirst, you'll never hunger. You'll never be wanting something new if you come to Jesus. That's what his statements are. John chapter 7 verse 37 says, In the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirsts, and by the way, aren't you glad he says any man? Don't sit there and tell me that there's a select few and that Jesus didn't die for all. He says in this big assembly, this congregation of people, he says, if any man thirsts, if any man will will come to me, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. You get the picture that Jesus offers something that every day is refreshing. You know what it is? Renewal. Renewal. But did you notice with every one of those opportunities, there was an offer? He says, if you hunger, come unto me. I'm the bread of life. But you've got to come. If you thirst... You've got to come and drink. What is that? Well, that's the first principle of of renewal. You have to receive what Jesus is offering if you're going to experience the benefits of what He is offering. You say, Brother Andrew, that's not very deep. Well, I've been preaching now every Sunday night for about five years. When are you going to learn that's about the way I would preach? You see, He says, If any man thirst, let him come unto me. Have you received what Jesus has to offer? Not what grandma taught you. Not what the preacher preaches. Not what this church uh, uh, somehow gets you involved in. Have you received what Christ himself is offering? This evening we'll notice three eternal truths that you must receive if you are to experience daily renewal. Number one, it's in verse number 36. It is this, you must receive the person of the Messiah. Verse number 36, Peter closes his sermon out and says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now the Hebrew word Messiah means anointed and chosen one. Israel for years looked to this promise of a coming Messiah who would deliver them. And somewhere along the way, their 
hopes and ambitions and aspirations for this deliverer, they they got altered a little bit because the Lord was promising a Messiah who would deliver them spiritually and they were wanting one that would deliver them politically. And the Bible says when Jesus came unto his own, his own received him not. The Bible says when light came into the world, men loved darkness rather than they loved light. So the anointed and chosen one of God came to this earth and he was rejected and despised among men. But Jesus was the Messiah. John chapter 4, in a conversation with the Samaritan woman, the woman says unto him, I know that Messiah cometh which is called Christ, when He has come, He will tell us all things. They're they're looking for this moment in time when this deliverer, this anointed and chosen one would come. And, and, And Jesus says unto her, I that speak unto thee am He. Don't sit there and tell me that Jesus didn't claim to be the Messiah. She says when Messiah comes, He will teach us all things. And Jesus says, yeah, you're looking at Him. And anybody that would teach you contrary to this particular doctrine that Jesus is the Messiah is a false teacher indeed. He says it not only in the conversation with the Samaritan woman, but Andrew, one of my favorite Bible characters, for obvious reasons I would suspect you would understand that. But Andrew, when he hears about Jesus and meets Jesus, he first first findeth his own brother Peter and he says this to him, We have found the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. The anointed and chosen one of God to be our spiritual deliverer. I want you to notice, number one, under this tonight, under the person of the Messiah, that this was the design of God. Notice in verse number 36. That God hath made that same Jesus. Now don't misunderstand what it is saying here. Jesus is eternal God. Jesus is not the creation of God. He is the firstborn of God. And you say, well, well, does that mean that Jesus was born? No, 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 no. Don't get confused. Jesus is the firstborn by birthright. He inherits that which the firstborn is to inherit. But he is not born. He was not created. Jesus is eternal God. He's been there as long as God the Father has been there. He was not a construct or a creation of the Father. Jesus is eternal God. In fact, uh, you can see even at the beginning of creation, the Bible says that God uh, looked at the world and he he began to get in a little huddle together with, with some others there. And he says, Elohim, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Elohim speaking a plurality of divinity, meaning there were more than one God there or at least attributes and persons of God. So you have Elohim created the world. And then he says, let us make man in our own image. Well, who's he talking to? There's nobody there. Well, he's talking to the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the, you see, the, the Trinity is something that existed in eternity past and will exist in eternity future. And Jesus is part of that. But Jesus, before the creation and foundation of the world, was selected in his messianic office. You understand the Bible says in Acts chapter 2 verse 23, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. What does that mean? It means that God knew way, way back when, before he even created man in the garden, that Christ would be the one that would have to die for them. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 calls him the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus was always going to have to die on the cross. You want to think of something kind of mind-boggling? Uh, on day three of creation, God created the trees. Can you imagine the day he created the tree that he would eventually hang his son on? On day number six, he created all uh, things that creeped on the earth. Uh, in other words, uh, all uh, animals. And Can you imagine the day when he created the lamb that would one day die for the sin that Adam and Eve would sin? 
Can you imagine the day when he comes to give Adam the curse? Do you remember what the curse was? Adam would have to work with the sweat of his brow. But God says, thorns and thistles will the ground produce. Did you know that if Adam had never fallen, there would be, never be a thorn? It's Adam's fault we have mesquite trees. It's cactuses. But take that a step farther. Even in the punishment of Adam... God was creating the object that would eventually be platted on his son's brow. And God knew this all along. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? You've never surprised him? No, not once. And the Bible says that this was God's plan all along. That Jesus would be the one who men would take and in their cruel hands they would crucify him. This was the design of God. Secondly, under the person of the Messiah, I want you to notice the death he endured. Verse number 6, the Bible says, God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified. I don't have to go too deep into this, and I won't go too deep into this, but throughout history there have been various and sundry, very cruel and just horrible ways men have created to kill other men. But of all of them, crucifixion has to rank at the very top of cruelty. Men would suffocate to the point where people would just watch them as life slowly drains away from them. With every breath, they have to struggle and fight for it. Uh, you know the story on the cross, but they eventually, because time is of the essence, they have to break the legs of the men that are on the cross, but they did not break the bones of Jesus, for the Bible says not one, jo- not one bone would be pointed out of joint. So it's fulfillment of prophecy that those soldiers passed him up, and they, they ran a spear up through his heart there that day. You remember the story, and, and all this time, this was a horrible and awful death, crucifixion. Psalm chapter 22, the Bible tells us a little bit of detail of the agony that Jesus would have gone gone through. The Bible says, they may tell all that my bones, they gape and stare upon me. In other words, people that were viewing the crucifixion could openly see the bones exposed of Jesus. His tongue cleaved to the roof of his mouth. This was the most excruciating death ever died. More than just the physical agony that Jesus endured, certainly the emotional agony must have been terrible as well for all of those men that had been faithfully following him there that day. Even John, even though he was at the foot of the cross, the Bible says, all you will be offended of me this night. So at one point or another, John was even offended of Jesus. But all of those men that he had invested in for three and a half years, all those men that he had loved, all those men that he had served, all those men that he had washed their feet... All of them betrayed Jesus as he hung on the cross. The emotional torment and agony. But the spiritual agony is something that we will never understand this side of heaven and maybe not even then. As for the very first time in human history, in in eternity, God the Father removed himself from God the Son. Now, I can't explain it how that someone who is three in one somehow became divided for a point in time. But the Bible says that the father turned his back on the son and the whole earth grew dark because of the wickedness that day that Jesus had to take upon his back. And my friend, have you ever wondered this? Have you ever asked this question? Why did Jesus have to go through that horrible death? No parent wants to see their child suffer like that. Man, no, no, I, I've seen my children get stung by bees and man, it breaks my heart. My wife can't even spank my children because she's just so tore up when it happens. And no parent wants to see their child suffer. Why did Jesus have to go through that death? Why couldn't it have been something much less dramatic or much less painful? Why? I'll tell you exactly why. Because that day, every ounce of the wrath of God towards sin had to be poured out on Jesus. 
The Bible says, for the wrath of God is revealed uh, against all uh, unrighteousness and wickedness in this world. So the wrath of God, God is extremely high and holy, and His holiness will not allow Him to look at sin. In fact, the Bible even tells us, uh, Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. It's not that God cannot stand iniquity, it's that God cannot even behold iniquity which is the very reason he had to turn his back on Jesus on the cross. And there, on that day, every ounce of the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus so that you and I would never have to experience his wrath. Don't sit there and tell me we have to go through the tribulation period. Jesus took all the tribulation on the cross of Calvary. Don't you sit there and tell me that he had to suffer, uh, that we have to suffer and we have to go through uh, some terrible time. No, no, no. Jesus took all of the punishment for your sin on the cross that day. There is no judgment for sin in the Christian's life. There's only a judgment of how you live for him while on this earth. You see, that's why Jesus had to go through that. This was the design of God. He had a death that he endured. And I want you to notice thirdly, the duality of his ministry. Notice in verse number six, this same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ speaks of both his divine nature and his humanity. The word Lord here is kurios. It's a a title given to God and dictates His supreme authority. Christos is the second word there. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. This speaks of Messiah coming in human flesh while still maintaining His divine nature as God. Jesus was not part God and part man. Jesus was all God and all man. He was 100% man and he was 100% God. You say, Brother Andrew, that adds up to 200%. Yeah, but somehow Jesus pulled it off because that's what the Bible teaches. Jesus came to this earth and suffered from things that you and I suffer from. It's crazy to me that Jesus suffered from hunger pains, albeit not nearly as severe as mine because I've never fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, that was a joke. Clearly, he suffered from the exact same things I did. But 40 days, that's crazy. I mean, that's a long time. He slept in the back of a ship. You know why? Because he was human. He needed to sleep. He felt emotional agony. Remember when Lazarus dies, the Bible says Jesus wept. It hurt him that his friend had died. He struggled with the same types of emotions that we struggle with. But in the same sense that he was human, he was absolute God because out of that ship, you know, he's sleeping in the back of the boat. It's just moments later, he stands up on the bow of the ship and says, peace, be still. Now, I could say that all day till I'm red in the face, but it ain't going to change the waves none. But when Jesus says it, they listen. All of nature listens to him. The demons even listened. I, uh, I read this morning in Sunday school class how the demons responded to him and called him the Holy One. They knew who he was. Uh, when, they, when Jesus casted them out of, the, out of legion there in Luke chapter 8, they did exactly what he said. They left legion and went to the swine. They, they got real good at negotiating there for a little bit, but they listened to Jesus. While Jesus was on this earth, there was a duality to his ministry. He was God in the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 takes this principle and doctrine a step farther and the Bible says in verse 19, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. You see, there is a very important reason that Jesus came and you cannot receive any amount of spiritual renewal. I'll tell you this, and I don't want to offend anybody this evening, but I believe one of the primary reasons that a lot of people get so burned out trying to live the Christian life is because they're not Christian. You say, what are you trying to say, Brother Andrew? I'm trying to say in an age and in a country where the gospel is so readily available, we have made it easy, we have made it so popular 
uh, especially in like the Bible Belt, uh, our kids come up through church and they say one prayer and yet there was no true act of repentance. There was no true understanding of what the gospel meant to them. I think we, we have... Uh, I've experienced this at youth camp. Uh, I was one of these who made a decision at a younger age and believed for many, many years that I was saved. But the reality is the reason a lot of people never experience a renewed Christian life is because they never experienced a new Christian life. The Bible says there will be people on that day that say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out many demons in thy name? You know what Peter says? Brethren, make thy calling and election sure. There is nothing more important than you to get settled, your eternal salvation. And at the end of service, I ask a question sometimes, how many of you are 100% sure? I would rather come to an altar and pray a prayer of repentance and uh, of faith a thousand times than have to settle for 99% sure. It's too important. Like Dad said this morning with Aunt Karen, I believe, was it, was it Karen or Aunt... Aunt Kelly, Aunt Kelly, it's a little bit too late in the game to be playing with I hope so. And so as we uh, look at this, uh, I think a lot of Christians have never received Jesus as the person of the Messiah. The Bible says, for there is salvation in none other name. There is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath the Son hath not life, right? What's it saying? You got to have the son to have a new life. Have you accepted the person of the Messiah? Secondly, we'll notice this evening, the preaching of the cross. Oh, I'm sorry, the preaching of the message. The preaching of the message. Verse number 37. I want you to take note here. We see the Bible says, now when they heard this, now before we get too far in this, I want you to notice a commandment that was obeyed. Did you know, now this is one of those real deep thoughts I was telling you about. Did you know in order for someone to hear something, someone has to say something? That, that may shock you. Listen to me though. Without Peter, this never happens. These people never hear. They're never brought to the point of conviction and eventual conversion unless somebody has the commitment to stand and preach the gospel. Now, I don't want to make you mad, but if your friends are going to hear the gospel, guess what? You may have to be their preacher. They heard this. There was a commandment obeyed. Romans chapter 10 says, And how shall they hear without a preacher? Paul, man, I, I like Paul's writings. They're pretty simple. Even I can understand them. He uses words like reckon. I reckon. Uh, and he says, how can they hear without a preacher? They, they've got to get the message. So first of all, we see under the preaching of the message, there is a commandment obeyed. Secondly, there is a conviction felt. Notice this in verse number 37, there's a conviction felt. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They were pricked in their heart. The word of God... When spoken, when God's truth is spoken, conviction should occur. Especially when the Holy Spirit begins to work. You see, without the Word of God, there is no conviction. Without the Holy Spirit of God, there is no conviction. They work together to convict the soul. The Bible says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. John chapter 16, verse 8 says, And when He is come, that is the Comforter, He will reprove the world of sin. Now, I try to be very um, biblically based, but I want to explain to you my personal experience of conviction um, and, and I hope it'll be a help to you as you try to understand conviction. I thought out pretty thoroughly what, how I was going to present this, and this is the way I could come up with that might, you might be able to understand. When I was 12 years old, as I mentioned earlier, I had thought I had made a profession of faith. I, um, I had gone to, down to the altar, but Honestly, the reason I raised my hand is because I'm tired of sitting down. And so in children's church, I went forward and I prayed a prayer. And I went through the, you know, the loops. I even got baptized. 
But it was my first youth camp as a camper. I went to youth camp every year, but it was my first youth camp as a camper where the preacher preached and I felt what I felt for the first time in my life, what I now know was conviction. Now for me, this conviction was actual torment of soul. A preacher has an illustration he uses about an Indian talking about a square, a, a square gear in a round space. It felt painful to me. I remember fighting an internal struggle and battle of, uh, it felt very much like I had the angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other shoulder. But what it was, was it was, it was me and my flesh fighting against spirit. And the spirit was saying, you're not saved. And my flesh was saying, oh yeah, I'm saved. I, I've done this before. But I felt within my heart that I knew if I died at that particular moment, I was on my way to hell. I had never realized it before, but some, for some reason on this night, when the preacher preached, the Holy Spirit began to work in my life, I felt for the very first time what I now know was true conviction. But I want to be very careful because what I think a lot of Christians have done, has we have mistaken conviction for guilt. And they are not the same. Conviction is more than guilt. Guilt is shame for a trespass committed. Conviction is sadness over that. You see, I can feel bad for doing something, but a sadness that is deeper than, than just shame... That's something that might detail conviction. A sorrow that will swallow you up and otherwise consume you if you do not immediately remedy the situation. Guilt is easily dealt with by the passing of time. True conviction is like a ringing in the ears. It is always present even if it is only the person that has it that notices it. David put it like this in Psalm chapter 51. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That word ever there means continually and perpetually. Can you imagine the king of Israel waking up every morning and as soon as his feet hit the floor, the first thought in his mind was, I am not right with God. Can you imagine as he goes and maybe takes his bath, the first thought in his mind was, Oh, this whole thing started with a bath. Can you imagine as he made his way to his courtroom where everybody's starting to ask him to judge situations? Hey, King David, what should we do here? And hey, King David, what should we do here? Everybody else might not know this, but in David's mind, he's not in the decision-making process. The only thing in his mind and on his heart is the fact that all those days of intimacy and all those days of, of, of good nature with God and all those days of good prayer and all those days of studying the law, all those are way in the past is now he deals with his sin and it is always on his mind and it is always on his heart. Conviction is constantly present with him. See, in my life I've noticed a great difference in guilt and conviction because guilt goes away. Conviction does not. A loving father chasteneth whom he loveth. And that chastening is in your heart and you can't get rid of it. And you know, and, 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 and in my life, I've even sensed that I become grumpy towards those that are not even deserving of it. I become short with those that are not even deserving of it because I'm not right with him. So how can I be right with y'all? Conviction sits in my heart. And there's a conviction felt. These people were pricked in their heart. It was on their mind. And the Holy Spirit and the Word of God worked in tandem to produce that. And then I want you to notice thirdly this evening under the preaching of the message, that there is a candor witness. Candor means a frankness. This question is posed after the word of God is preached, the conviction is felt. Now in verse number 37, these men are left with a decision. They say, men and brethren, what shall we do? You see, this is the, this is the question that every authentic movement of God ought to leave you asking. I become very worried about someone who makes a profession of faith 
or says that there was a great movement of God in their life and somehow days and weeks later, it's like that's all gone out the window. We a lot of times attribute that to to youth camp decisions. But I'll tell you what, right now, there's decisions made at this altar that seemingly they are left where they are prayed. As once they leave the altar, there's no real change made. There's no real evidence that a decision was ever made. I become very concerned about these because what I've noticed is when you ask this question, what, what, what should I do, God? You are opening yourself up to any answer he gives you. What do you want me to do? It's like the maniac of Gadara. It's the first sermon I ever preached, but he comes to Jesus. Uh, we don't even know how long he had been in the tombs. We have, no long, how, we have no idea how long he's been terrorizing this town. No idea of any of this. He's been an embarrassment. He's brought shame upon his family. Finally, we see him clothed. Uh, and sitting at Jesus' feet in his right mind, and here is his question. Lord, can I go with you? Lord, can I go with you? I miss my family, absolutely. I've, I've, I don't even know when the last time I saw him was, but Lord, you've made such a change in my life. Can I go with you? And Jesus says, no, you need to go home, and you need to tell everyone what kind of difference I've made in your life. Did you know the Bible says about that? I mean, he may have very well been one of the best missionaries in all the Bible because when Jesus returns to that country, everybody is looking forward to the day when Jesus shows up because they couldn't believe what he had done in that man's life. What I see there is a real evidence of con- conversion in the man's life. I, I, I find myself bordering on the edge of James, right? James chapter 2, he says, You say you have faith? Show me by your works. The only evidence I have is your works. I'm by no means your judge, but you can't just sit there and say all day, I'm a spiritual person, but but we got to be moving forward for the cause of Christ. We ought to be serving Him. We ought to be doing more for Him. And these people, their question is this, Lord, whatever you'd have me do, what shall I do? I need to do it. Tonight, maybe the Lord's already speaking in your life. Uh, Maybe He's already touching your heart. And and, and the question that is appropriate to be asked at the end of service is, Lord, what shall you have me do? If that question were asked more at Baptist churches, more altars would be full. If that question were asked more often at Baptist churches, there would be no Sunday school classes needing teachers. There would be no bus routes not being run. There would be no need for laborers because... God is still calling, God is still moving, God is still working. When His Word is preached, if Christians will just ask this question, Lord, what will you have me to do? Every need will be met in the church. I don't believe God ever makes crippled churches. We are a body working together for the purpose of His glory. And I just don't think He puts any missing femurs in His church. Every hole will be filled if this question was to be asked. We see the person of the Messiah. And you cannot experience renewal unless you have received Christ as Savior. You cannot experience renewal unless you have heard the preaching of this message and felt conviction and and frankly asked this question, Lord, what will you have me to do? You cannot experience renewal if you're holding back at all. Thirdly, I want you to notice with me this evening, you cannot experience renewal unless you have received the presentation of the mandate. These men ask this question, what would you have me to do? And there are four answers given. We'll go through them quickly. Number one, I can't stay on this one too long because this one will be a message later on in the series. Number one, notice in verse number 38. What shall you have me to do at the end of verse 37? Then Peter said unto them, repent. Repent. And then you'll notice in verse number 41, the Bible says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. They accepted that as the proper remedy for their situation. Peter says, repent. By the way, that's not always an easy message to give. Uh, Hey, you're wrong. God's right. Now you start doing what he wants you to do. You're wrong. The the life you've lived this far has been in, in complete opposition to God. You stop doing what you're doing and start doing what he wants you to do. Repent. It's not always an easy message. But it's the message that Peter preaches and it's the message that these people gladly receive. 
Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary defines repentance as this, to sorrow or to be pained for sin as violation of God's holy law, a dishonor to his character and government, and the foulest ingratitude to a being of infinite benevolence. Repentance. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Many of the verses in the Bible that speak of repentance are directed to the unsaved, as in this case. They're unsaved individuals. They're not redeemed. And they say, what shall we do? And Peter says, okay, here's what you should do. You should repent. Did you know that's the first step to salvation? Repent. You have to repent. With no repentance, there is no conversion. There is no true conversion. And I'll tell you, that's one of the things that a lot of uh, modern churches have taken out of the gospel is the absolute necessity of repentance towards God. But there are some verses that speak of it in the Christian's life. Psalm chapter 66, verse 18, the Bible says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I have unrepented sin in my heart, my my Lord's relationship is not good. So much so that his ear will be shut off from me. Isn't that what he tells them in Isaiah chapter 1? The Lord's hand is not... We shorten that it cannot save. His ear is not heavy that his ear cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Unconfessed sin, unrepented sin in the Christian's life always separates the Christian from the Lord. Proverbs chapter 22 verse 13. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. The first step to uh, daily renewal is this. Receive repentance. If you're not saved this evening, the first step for you is get saved. You cannot be living a happy Christian life unless you know the Christ in which you're living for. You must repent of sin. Peter gives them a second instruction. Notice this. Repent and be, what's that next word there in verse 38? Baptized. I'll take it a step farther. You not only must repent to live a a, a renewed Christian life, you must take the first step in obedience in following the Lord. If we were to hand out a poll tonight, I would almost guarantee you that we would be ashamed of the number of Christians in Baptist churches who do not have a proper baptism. And you say, this isn't important at all. Did you know that the Lord, the Father in heaven, only says, well done, or he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased twice in his ministry. Did you know that? Only twice. One of them is at his baptism. The other one is on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, I emphasize the Mount of Transfiguration because I don't think there would be too many Bible students disagree with me that the Mount of Transfiguration is essentially the height of Jesus' ministry, maybe second only to the resurrection. As, As His glory is manifested, the Mount of Transfiguration is one of the greatest moments in all of the gospel, and the Lord says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, that makes sense there. We, we, we know that's an awesome moment. But the Lord addresses what takes place at His baptism with the same language that He does on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says in both cases, He puts them on equal playing fields. This is just as important to me as Him being high and lifted up and uh, the tabernacles being built to Him and angels and and His glory being uh, well known. That's my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He has the same reaction when John the Baptist baptizes Him in the muddy Jordan River. He says... This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus says, I must do this to fulfill all righteousness. Did you know that in being baptized, Jesus was picturing the eventual death that he would die? You understand that when we get up in the water, we stand in the water as a representation of our following the Lord and believer's baptism. 
We are buried with him in baptism. We break the surface of the water. It indicates it's a picture of our death with Christ. Some people say, I noticed Brother Randy Ashcraft the other night said, raised to walk in newness of light, which is in the New Testament, and that's okay. I say this, buried with him in baptism, raised uh, in the likeness of his resurrection because... We are dying with Him and we are rising with Him. It is a testimony of our belief that He not only died, but He was buried in the tomb and He rose again on the third day. We picture His death, burial, and resurrection in our baptism. Jesus was just picturing the eventual death that He would die. And it is absurd how many Christians make light of proper baptism. Did you know more Baptists have died and given their life to defend that pool of water up there than any other doctrine of our faith? Did you know that people have spilled their blood for that pool of water? So that we could be baptized by immersion so that, so that infants would, the, the, the sprinkling at eight days old didn't matter at all. And they called them anabaptizers, which meant rebaptizers because Baptists rebaptized the infants. Did you know more people have been killed by the Catholic Church for that doctrine than any other? And I have to sit down with somebody and explain to them why alien baptism is not okay. I have to sit down and convince them and persuade them that church membership is so important that they would have to go through that water. If you want to live a renewed Christian life, you cannot say, well, I'll do what Jesus says in certain aspects and I'll not do what he says where I don't want to do those things. You say, that's embarrassing for me. Hey, talk about the preacher's kid getting baptized eight years after he got saved because I was embarrassed, but it is worth it because that's what Jesus asks us to do. We are to repent. We are to be baptized. Thirdly, we are to receive the Holy Ghost. Verse 38, the Bible says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, this is not your responsibility. This is something that accompanies the decision of salvation. Notice it does not say, and ye shall work for it. And ye shall do something to get it. Earlier in the book of Acts in chapter 2, in the first four verses, we find the Holy Spirit coming as a mighty rushing wind into the church. It was a picture of the Holy Spirit's indwelling on the church, and it was evidenced by speaking of tongues and spiritual gifts. But the Holy Spirit had already come to the church earlier in Acts chapter 2. And now, in, in, at the end of the chapter, in verse number 38, Peter says, uh, you've got to receive the Holy Ghost, and you will if you make this decision. And I find that in the last two weeks, I've, spoke great, I've spoken a great deal on the Holy Spirit, but the more I am maturing as a Christian and the more I am learning about God's Word, the more I realize that renewal without the Holy Spirit of God is impossible. You can sing about Jesus all day long, and my friend, those are the best songs to sing. You can talk about God's goodness, and by the way, it's the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance, and that's great. But God is in heaven, and Jesus Christ is seated on His right hand. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Godhead who is here right now trying to help you in this particular service. He's who equips the believer outside of these walls to be a minister for His, uh, for his glory. The Holy Spirit of God is the agent that equips us and helps us and comforts us in times of difficulty. It is the Holy Spirit of God that provides all of these things. In fact, in John chapter 7, verse 38, I read it earlier, but the Bible says, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. The next verse says this, speaking of the belly, uh, water, living water flowing out of the belly of the believer, the next verse, verse 39, says this, But this he spake of the Spirit. Jesus is the water of life. 
But the only way to get a constant renewal of that life, the spring of living water, comes through the providence of the Holy Ghost of God in your life. Sometimes I'll put directions on my phone. I, I try to be as anti-millennial as I possibly can be. I think I'm right on the verge, but I think I'm aged out of that just a little bit. I do think I have some millennial characteristics and tendencies, but I, I don't want to be part of them, and so I try not being part of them. But I do know that one thing that I do that is very millennial is if I have to get somewhere that I don't already know where to go, when somebody begins to give me directions, I immediately stop listening. Because I am wholly reliant on my GPS. They say, oh yeah, yeah, the address, you know, uh, 3231 Southwest Wilshire Boulevard. Okay. And then they go on to explain it. They're like, you know, you go up by the Big Willies and you take a right. Go down to the Pig, Piggly Wigglies and then you'll see an academy on your left and then you'll see Joshua Christian Academy on your right. You just keep going. And, and by the time I get all of this, I'm just confused and I'm just trying to remember the address so I can input that into my GPS. And since I've gotten my watch, I've learned that my watch and my phone work together to give me directions. In fact, we'll go on long road trips. I'll put my phone down in the cup holder. I'll have it plugged up and I'll have the GPS going, and about 200 feet before the turn, I'll start to feel this. And I'll look down at my watch, and it has the, the route. I don't know how you say that, route or route. It just depends on whether you're from Michigan, I guess. But route, it has the route. You know, if i got to turn right, it'll say right and 40 feet and... and Friend, the only way I can explain this to you is in your Christian walk, the Holy Spirit is that sensation, but in your heart. You see, the first time I did that, I thought that I just I was super popular that day. You know, somebody had broken into the church or something. I'm just getting text message after text message. But I realized, no, it's the directions. As God wants to deliver directions to you, you know what I've noticed? You know, people claim that they need dreams and external revelation. That is such a foolish thought because the way I look at it is, if God's Holy Spirit cannot deliver a message to me, why do I need a dream that I could possibly confuse with bad anchovies on a pizza? I mean, you ever have one of those weird dreams? What's to dictate whether or not you're just having a weird dream or a, a dream from God? How do you know? Because... God doesn't work that way anymore. When God the Father wants to deliver a message to the heart of the Christian, here's what the Christian feels. He says, you know you ought not be doing that. Hey, you see that waitress over there? She needs to hear about your church. Hey, you know what? You should probably just give a phone call, send a text message, shoot an email to somebody. They really need to hear that they're doing a good job. And without that, you cannot obey God. Otherwise, we're just walking blindly through this world. And you're depending on your proverb a day to direct your steps. That ain't how it works. The Holy Spirit works in your life. We need to receive the Holy Ghost. We need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. What I've noticed is we do not need more Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost needs more of us. We've got all of the dosage of Him we're going to get when we got saved. The difference is we hold back portions of us in obeying Him. We receive the Holy Ghost. And then finally, I'm done. I've got seven minutes. Man, I, I, I told Amy, I have a very underappreciated gift that people don't... I don't know why people don't appreciate this about me. I have a very good gift for taking short passages of Scripture and stretching them over an hour and ten minute period of time. That is not an easy thing to do, but I'm getting good at it in my older age. I'm noticing. Uh, I don't know if you appreciate it or not. Amy said the only time she doesn't appreciate it is when she's in the nursery. Amen. <laughs> Verse 42, here's the final uh, 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 thing that we must do for experience renewal. This is the presentation of the mandate. Peter gives four of them. They are as follows. Number one, repent. Number two, be baptized. Number three, receive the Holy Ghost. And then fourthly, in verse number 42, here it is. And they continued steadfastly. You say, I got that. I've been here 30 years. No, steadfastly. 
That word there, steadfastly, continued steadfastly, it means to give constant attention to one thing. And we're good at giving attention, but are we good at giving constant attention? These new Christians did not go through a discipleship program. They did not have the uh, opportunity to be under years and years of a seasoned preacher. In fact, their preacher just a few weeks earlier had just denied Christ. Peter. Uh, and Peter now has given them a message and he said, they say, what shall we do? Peter says, repent, be baptized. You do that, you'll receive the Holy Ghost. And if you receive the Holy Ghost, here's the next step. You have to continue steadfastly. Man, what I've experienced is a willingness to commit is probably the number one thing missing among Christians in the church today. Commit whether it's baseball season or not. Commit whether it's hunting season or not. Look, I love hunting as much as the next guy. I love baseball as much as the next guy. But the lessons we are teaching our children with our obsessive tendencies towards these things, we are not giving attention to one thing. We're giving to attention to things that really aren't that important. Let's give our attention wholly to Christ and His church. If you're going to receive daily, uh, get daily renewal, you must receive what Christ has to offer. This evening I close. Brother Mark, you mind helping me tonight? I don't want to bore you too bad, bud, but I appreciate you paying attention. You've been, been a real trooper. I've noticed you over here just doing a good job. Come up here, Mark, for me. Now, I was going to do this with a $100 bill, but the problem was is I'm broke and I only have a $10 bill. So, um, Mark, you're just out of luck. I do have an Academy gift card if you want that, but no, not much of an Academy guy. <laughs> Bad choice. I won this, won this clay shoot the other day. That would have been good. $50. I told somebody I had to pay for one of the guys on my team. I spent $240 to win $50. i am a real steward. So I have $10 here. I wish it was 100 Just use your imagination. Youth department, imagination. There you go. You like that? It's a SpongeBob reference. Don't worry about it. Uh, but I have $100 here missing a zero. And now with this, Mark, what, what's something you're into right now? What's your favorite soda? Uh, Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew, okay. You can come over to my house. Miss Amy has some of them. Uh, she gets a little grumpy when you take them, though, I've noticed. But all right, so... Mark likes Mountain Dew. Uh, where's your favorite place to eat, uh, like kind of fast foodish? Um, Chick Fil A. Chick Fil A, that's a good one. Yeah. Hey, tomorrow I have a fifty percent discount card. Come with me. I'll take you up there. It's called the Holy Cow card. They give it to preachers. Uh, <laughs> I have ten dollars here. Now I know for a fact Chick Fil A does not sell Mountain Dew, but if you plan ahead, you could stop at Quick Trip, get a Mountain Dew. And go, what's your favorite meal at Chick-fil-A? The spicy chicken sandwich. Boy, that's a good one, man. That's a good one. Do you get the deluxe or just the normal one? That depends on whether or not I have enough money. Oh, well, I happen to have $100 here. (laughs) Brother Mark likes the spicy deluxe chicken sandwich with a Mountain Dew. I have $100. That could buy imagination, remember. But I have plenty of money here to buy that meal. Now, Brother Mark, if I wanted to give this to you, what would be the one thing you had to do? Take it. Ah, Everybody give him a big hand. I mean, he did not pay attention at any point in the sermon, but I said that earlier. Do you all remember that? In order to get something, you must receive it, right? So, Mark, here's my gift to you. It's $100. I'm going to write it off as a charitable donation to my taxes, which I need to do this week. All right? Uh, So, Brother Mark, here's this money. Thank you. (laughs) All right, Brother Mark, you can go sit down. Give Brother Mark a big hand. Now, that was a simple illustration, but it cost me 10 bucks, so it better resonate. A hundred (laughs) bucks. In order to receive something... You must take it. Jesus says, if any man thirst, come unto me. If any man hunger, I am the bread of life. But Jesus can only do so much. By the way, he did everything on the cross. And now the opportunity and the decision waits upon unsaved and saved alike to follow him in complete obedience and total surrender. 
In order to experience renewal, you must receive what he has to offer. 